So you're very welcome to episode 98 of FNI Rap Chat. Uh, yes, so I am recording this in my bedroom at home for obvious reasons. I hope you're all doing very well out there and minding yourselves and um, dealing with the situation as best as you can. Uh, it's very uncertain times. It's quite scary for people in all industries, but uh, I know a lot of people in our industry are, are really feeling it at the moment and there's so much uncertainty and uh, a lot of people's projects are delayed um, a lot of other people are using the time to work on projects that maybe they wouldn't have time to work on otherwise so um, hopefully people are able to get some positives out of it um, so let us know um, drop us a mail at uh, info at we are FNI or get in touch with us uh, on the on the social media platforms um, we'd really love to hear you hear about uh, what you're all going through and uh, how you're dealing with the the situation. Um, with that in mind, um, we are looking to do kind of a best of episode uh, for the hundredth episode. Initially, we were hoping to do some sort of live event and have a little bit of a celebration because it's uh, quite quite a a milestone for us to get to this number of of the podcast, and we're we're really proud of it. Um, so we'd love to hear from you guys and what what episodes uh, you enjoyed, if there's any anecdotes or stories or, or little nuggets of advice that have come from any of the episodes. Uh, please let us know, c- get in contact. We'd love to include these uh, segments in the best of episode for episode 100. Uh, we'd really appreciate, appreciate your help with that if you can help us out. Um, so today we've got... Billy McGrath, um, a really fascinating career, um, lovely guy, he was great to talk to, has a lot of experience, not just in film and TV, but also his background is more, more so started in uh, music and comedy and uh, promoting and PR and things like that, so um, we got a really <laughs> in-depth kind of uh, look into uh, the history of kind of media in Ireland and and over the last forty years, and um, uh, just uh, yeah, just a brilliant chat with Billy. And then um, his film Citizens of of Boomtown is on the player about uh, the Boomtown Rats, and it's brilliant. I absolutely loved it. Uh, I have been a big fan of the band for a long time, but uh, even so, I think you'd really enjoy this. Um, if any fans of the documentaries of Julian Temple will probably see some uh, influences there. And it's uh, just, yeah, it's if you like your music docs, uh, a little bit uh, punky, a little bit different, um, this one's for you. It's a, it's a great story. Um, next week, we're going to have Morris Sweeney, a uh, brilliant documentary and drama director, um, ha- and has got to mix the two of those in, in some brilliant films over the years, including... I Dolores uh, from last year. Uh, he's working on Blood at the moment. Um, he's directing that for uh, Virgin Media. And uh, he's also worked on uh, the brilliant show uh, Twilight of the Century, uh, which was out a couple of years ago. And if you go to uh, Morris's Vimeo page, a lot of his work is up there, uh, a lot of the TV work. So you might have missed it the first time it was on, but it's... Uh, 
it's great that he's put stuff up there so um i'll definitely check that out ahead of next week and uh yeah i'd just like to give a shout out to uh, stephen bedford who has been doing uh brilliant work on mixing our episodes the, the ones that we've done in the studio uh so we really appreciate that and uh yeah as i said before uh good luck to everybody we hope you're managing uh, as best you can and uh yeah keep in touch and let's uh, hear a little bit more about the fascinating career of Billy Nevada. Billy, thanks very much for joining us in the studio. You're you welcome. Um, so you just fin- you just had the broadcast and you had the premiere of uh, the Boomtown Rats, Citizens of Boomtown. Um, could you tell us a bit about how that came about? A long story, <laughs> or a short story. Uh, the long story is that I was ENTS officer in Belfield in 1975 when the Boomtown Rats started. And... A month later, the terrible tragedy of the Miami show band happened. Massacre. Mm. So we were running the biggest venue in Dublin, upstairs in a restaurant in Belfield. So we had to go and find local bands. We, we just had so many cancellations. And one of the bands we saw was the Boomtown Rats. And that began a relationship. It turned out I used to work in a pea factory with Jerry Cott, the guitarist, a year beforehand. And it's only when I saw him on stage, you know, the, so that began, a, uh, you know, it was a busy year. I was only there for a year. But at the end of that year, uh, Bob knocked on the door and said he had a spare ticket to see The Who and Little Feet in Swansea, open air. And I, and I said, oh, great, a car, you know, like over the ferry. And on the way over, he started to talk about this idea he had to bring local rock bands in to the provinces as such. Show bands were everywhere. Dublin, there was a fair good, good, good scene, but outside. So, make long story short, I moved into the house. I helped them organise the Falling Asunder Rock Review, which was the first ever rock uh, tour of Irish bands. Two months later, after playing 17 dates in about 24 days, the band were really tight. They went to London, got the record deal, and I went back and opened up rock gigs in Galway and Limerick that had none, but they were packed out. So that started my career in music, PR. I was also involved in stand-up, comedy. So I spent t- t- 10 years in that world. I was doing PR for MCD, for Aiken Promotions. I was doing The Clash when they came to London. I was doing PR for Rory Gallagher, uh, Christy Moore. So I began to develop a little one-man little industry. Right. And I remember a defining week I had done PR for uh, an a cappella band called the Flying Pickets, which had very successful. And I'd, I'd done support act as a stand-up, Galway, Cork, Limerick and Dublin in the, in the National Stadium. And afterwards, the following morning, when I was saying goodbye to them, they said, would you fancy doing the U- U- doing a U- UK tour? And I went, what? We're doing six weeks but the, the same week, I got a letter from RT to say that I've been accepted on their six-month 
traineeship as a producer director. So I was 32 and I jumped at it because I've been in and out of RT a lot. I bring an axe in. I sometimes be asked, you want to sit in the box? And I remember once in with Rory Gallagher on a Saturday morning program, Dave, Dave Hefferden. And I remember the, the floor manager saying, do you want to go up to the box and watch it? And I went, what? The box? He brought me up to the box, which is basically where the director sits. Yeah. And I sat at the back and I went, wow. This feels like home. All these screams and, <laughs> and, the, and the noise. Wow. If you're at home, you, know, you don't see and it's live. Yeah. And suddenly I said, this is, this, this is, this is good. Yeah. So when RT advertised, yeah. I got my CV out and I... And I'd say the music scene was probably tough. Had you had enough of it at that stage? Ah, yeah, late nights and stuff yeah. like that. It is a bit tough. Yeah, yeah, it is. You know, it's only a certain. It's, uh, it's a young man's game. You know, I don't mean it in a sexist way. It's a young, young woman's game as well. Because, yeah. you know, but but uh, yeah, you kind of feel, you know. But then of course we didn't talk to you. And you ended up on the road again. But you know, but but I just felt that 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 uh, I was I was you know I was writing, performing. I was putting on shows. I was taking punts. You know what I mean? If I saw an opportunity to open up a comedy club in Bray, I go as in punts or punts as in risks. Punks, as both. I, <laughs> I, I, I was a gambler, right? Right. So when it came to being able to answer a question in RT about being a producer, you know, by then I knew how to put on an event. Now what I didn't know was how to load a stills camera. Yeah. Like I had to be told how to do do the sprockets because at that stage you used to open the flap, you get a roll, you, you <laughs> stick it on one, one side, you, you, you know you pull out the film and, and you load it and you, you listen to the, listen to this kids. This is very important. This is how things used to be. <laughs> used to be, yeah. yeah. So you know again, but I was very lucky also that when I started in RT, they were just on the cusp of getting rid of film, mm. which mm. is basically everything was shot in film, yeah. and they were just bringing in tape. Yeah. So I trained on film. And for anybody, you know, I was so lucky because tape nowadays, you just shoot everything. Mm. Oh, it doesn't matter. Use three cameras, little cameras, small cameras. Use your iPhone. Shoot everything. And then you go into the post-production. But when, you ha- when you're told you have 11 minutes in, in a can, mm. you've got to go away and think about the story mm. and think about what you want to bring into the edit suite. Because, again, you don't have this digital system where you can, like, you literally kind of cut film. So more of a craft. So you, so you learn to appreciate Brevity. preparation. Because you don't have a week, you might have a day to do a seven-minute story. Like I started doing kind of factual stuff and feature stuff. And then I was lucky. You two were on the cusp of, of a, a crest of a wave and they were coming back to play Crow Park uh, a year after I started. And I'd done PR for you two when they played the Phoenix Park. So we had a relationship. I think relationships are so important for anybody who I think wants to break into the industry is no matter if you feel frustrated, go and offer yourself, go and go and pick up a tripod, go and help others. I think that's that's one of the things when you see how successful people are in TV and film, they normally were always a team member. So yeah. I suppose the relationships that I had in the music industry, some of them went on, you know, to become very, I wouldn't say powerful, but become very uh, 
important in the development because when I started and the rat started, there was no music industry. There was no music programs on on RT really except for show band shows. So when I went in on the training course, one of the guys, it was like kind of sitting beside somebody at school you really got on well with. I sat down beside a guy called Declan Lowney who was a few years younger than me and he was uh, an, like an editor. Uh, he was from Wexford and he had long hair and he, he said... Still does. He just, he's still curly, does, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Did you do him yet? No, I, 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 we'd love to. I was great. speaking to him about it. He said when he's back he'd love to come on. Yeah. Declan's great. And... So when, so when somebody was giving, a, it, was, it was one of those six-month courses where the first three months was like in a classroom, and the second three months you would be kind of succumbed to the programs. But the first three, three, three months sometimes was quite a bit much. And we'd be writing notes, like old boys at school, and writing notes back and forth. So we came up with an idea called TV Gaga, which was a live 90-minute program which Orchie would never had thought of before. It was basically an alternative Late Late Show. So on Thursday night, from 10 o'clock to half 11, was a live show with music. Comedy wasn't really around, but we tried. Sketches, maybe. Young Sean, Sean Hughes yeah. did his first ever appearance there. Uh, John K- Kenny, who started the, uh, with Pat Short, would be unbelievable. He, he made his TV debut there. So I always liked this idea that as well as doing what I was doing in the music and comedy, the television was also an opportunity to disrupt. Mm. You know, you can actually disrupt. You can actually kind of break a few glass ceilings here. Right? Right. So that's, that always fueled my career and it fueled my life. Uh, I, I, was, I was always interested in what's not there and try and fill the space. So if there wasn't a stand-up show on RT, why isn't it? I go well now. Well, uh, <laughs> stand-up show. Uh, well, generally, you know, you rattle a few cages. You rattle a few cages, and ultimately, again, the relationships that that you form are usually the ones that help when either you want financial help or you want to creative help. Uh, so I've been very lucky that as soon, you know, um, backstage, I did a half an hour with, I don't know what anybody out there is aware of a, uh, a show that was produced from Newcastle called The Tube. Now, the Tube Rings was on. the first real, you know, alternative, it really caught that new wave of music. But at the same time, you can have Dave, Dave, David Bowie on, Paul McCartney, but then underneath would be The Clash would be Elvis Costello. And I love that show. It was more and subversive as opposed to like yeah, the old, like old grey whistle test. Six o'clock like on a Friday, presented by Jules Holland and Paulie Yates. Oh, okay. So, but I, I did a, I directed a half an hour at U2. They were doing a big, big show in Cork and the opportunity to go over with Dave Fanning and we put together a half an hour, a nice little half an hour of U2 in Italy. And backstage happened to be Malcolm Gary who was the exec producer of Wired. And Paul McGuinness, the manager, introduced me, and we got to chatting. And then, but a year later, he phoned me up. That's all we had. We had no texts, we had nothing else. A phone rang, and he said, I'm starting a new show in London. Would you be interested in becoming the locations director? And I went, yes. I learned more. It turned out that he'd got money from Channel 4. It was going to be on CBC in Canada. 
It was going to be on the USA Network in America. And this was a big, big production. It was called Wired. Wired, okay. Wired. And dare I ask, what kind of year was this? The, the year, it would have been uh, 1988. Okay, ah, so not, uh, and not a million years. Again, it's one of those stories that I knew Frank Murray, the manager of the Pogues, well. Mm. Uh, Philip Chevron had produced, I used to manage a band called The Atrix, and Philip Chevron had produced the Muniz Buse. And I was really interested in the Pogues. I loved the Pogues. I loved the characters in the Pogues. Mm. Uh, so when I read that they were doing a week of gigs in the town and country club, around Patrick's week in 1988, maybe December, mm-hmm. I said to Frank, I'd love to do a doc. I'd love to follow that week, just be in the venue for the whole week mm-hmm. and see who comes, because they had guests on, Joe Strummer, you know, the loads of guests. And he said... Like a gold mine in that week. Just, again, it's yeah. down to the cost as well. Like, yeah. you don't have to, you know travel all over. I hate London. I've lived in London twice. And I kind of hate London. I like London now because I only go to a meeting or go to a lunch or I might stay over for a, a, a blah blah dinner or something. You know what I mean? And it's you stay in a nice hotel. But then you'd be over and you you know, you just... I, I always felt g- g- comfortable here. Yeah. And I always had a belief you could do anything from here. You could, you could have your work shown anywhere. You, you, you could do as international as you want, as long as you don't look for influences here. And I never really look for influences here. Okay. Uh, so to make a long story short, I did the, the, the week-long shoot in the Titanic Country Club. Yeah. And on the 19th of March, I joined Wired, which was initial to TV. And that was Malcolm Gary, a video director called David Mallet, mm-hmm. and a couple of other really, really good guys. Mm. And I spent eight months in London just working on that show. But most of my work was getting on a plane to do... Uh, we did Pink Floyd in Versailles in France. We did Credit House in uh, Japan. You know, we did Michael... Uh, we did prints in Munich. We, you know, we, we, literally, it was an international show that was yeah. going to be shown in Canada, America, and Britain. So all the record companies said, you know what, if we want our act to hit yeah. the main English-speaking markets on this side of the world, this is a show to be on. So because of the tube too, they built a great relationship. So, you know, to be sitting in front of David Byrne who, who was over in London doing an Oompa Oompa band as part of some arts week, you know? Yeah. And you, and then, the, 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 of course, at the end, I was going, David, uh, I'm doing a documentary in the Pogues. He said, oh, look, because he brought over the accordion player right. uh, to, to play in an album. Mm. I said, do you mind if I ask you a question? And he said, that's fine. So he gave me a great reply in the Pogues. So all the time you're, yeah. you're just building up, building up relationships but I also like that world. I, I oh, always like to be behind the scenes. Mm. I always like the fact that you, the, the camera go off and somebody will say, you're going for a pint or come to dinner. Here's a show and you get a different pass and you end up hanging out. I loved sound engineers, lighting, you know, yeah. lighting te- te- technicians. But there were some of my best friends were, were the, the Benefits crew. without the hassle. Benefits without the hassle. But I quite liked, I always appreciated 
when you when a production ha- happens, yeah. it cannot be done without the people on the outside, and they sometimes are the ones that keep the energy going. Yeah, and you know we're talking about DOPs and and production managers and location managers and design people. It's nice to find people you really get on well with. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, if I ever have a job of a certain magnitude, I call up the same team. And that gives a huge benefit mm-hmm. and trust because they're able to say, to say to you, look, it's not going to work mm-hmm. or it yeah. does, doesn't work yeah. mm-hmm. or they're not great. And you go, Short, okay. Yeah, shorthand is hard earned. Right? Shorthand, yeah, yeah. So you were able to kind of bring all your interests together in your in your work. And like, so you obviously love music and you love comedy and then you were able to make TV and I'm a bit I'm not saying I'm sitting here as an imposter but I never imagined I'd be a director do you know what I mean mm. I, I never went to fil- fil- film school mm. but you know I was a huge film fan and I was a huge you know uh, I would have a huge interest to, not really the actors I'd be, I'd be a huge interest in the directors yeah. I, I, the, all, all, all that world began to interest me mm. but I suppose in a director in a documentary as opposed to a director in a scripted film, a director in a scripted film is completely different because, you know, there's a lot of people watching you. There's a lot of people riding on you. you, Your career could rocket or plummet in one movie. You know what I mean? When you're doing a doc, you 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 can decide halfway through that you want more interviews. You can decide halfway through that you really want that piece of archive. You can decide halfway through that you need to put on a performance or you need to do something else. You know what I mean? But on the doc too, the best docs that I always loved doing were the ones where you take a punt, like like the Pogues, for instance. You know, mm-hmm. that turned out to be a fantastic week. It turned out to be great energy, fantastic interviews and guests. But you have to knock on the door and say, oh, come on, you must do it, you must do it. If you don't do it, it's gone. So I remember again, I've, you know, uh, I, I'm only saying this because this month, uh, or, or recently, RT was showing a look back on Big Jack, right? But in 1987, 1988, I was a very good soccer player. I played first team for... Yeah, for UCD. So I was playing for Dublin under 18s when I was kind of 17. I was, I was, you know, I wasn't bad. Yeah. So when I went to UCD, uh, I was on the first soccer team in my second year. Mm. And at the end of that, I played at the graduates team. And a player who decided to join U- UCD then was a guy called Kevin Moran. Yeah. And Kevin Moran was doing his post grad. He didn't want to go over to the UK. He was a star for the Dublin G- the GA team. Yeah. And this is what I'm talking about relationships. Myself and Kevin were on really well. He went over to Manchester United. I continued my life. So fast forward to 1988, and Kevin is in charge of the players' pool. Like all international teams, when they reach a the tournament, they nominate a couple of players to be in charge of the commercial side. And Kevin was an accountant, but by 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 you know by trade, yeah. I suppose, and still is. <laughs> uh, and Tony O'Neill was the boss of UCD Soccer Club. So t- Tony O'Neill by then was the chief executive of the FAI. So I approached Tony and said, "I'd love to follow the team." 
And he said, well, what do you mean? He said, I have a feeling about this team because I was a big soccer fan. I used yeah. to go to the matches yeah. and I've been there for 20 years. I could see teams, so they're not good. But I saw this team develop. So I said, let's. So I approached James Morris and Wynne Mullane and Peter Brady was there as well. And they said, I was working with, actually in Wynne Lane, I think for about two and a half years, doing the Pogues, doing Kilkenneth, doing a lot of work. And uh, they said, yeah. And Kevin Moran are the team. And the deal was they allow a camera to follow the matches. And if they qualify, then we sit down and talk at a deal, okay. which is per- perfect. So again, we Kieran, uh, one of the best cameramen that I ever worked with, a guy called Kieran Tatanum, and we followed the Irish team behind the scenes You're on with the bus. Eight? No, afterwards, 1989, uh, the end of '88 into '89, all of '89, and that became a feature-length film uh, paid for by Warner Brothers. But then again, for p- people out there who don't understand, yeah. there was no DVDs. Right. Mm-hmm. It was sold as a VHS. Okay. Right. And so and that it, was it was the, the it was the biggest selling VHS. I think it sold hundreds of thousands of copies here. Uh, but I'm only explaining that too because uh, I like to get involved in projects that don't fail. I'd like to get in projects that make everybody a few bob, because I can then have a living, yeah. right? And then people kind of trust you and then say, we have a project for you. I think you're the right man. I go, thank you. And uh, so that wouldn't have gotten a cinema release at all. That would have been just straight. It was shown in a pri- private cinema for the team. Yeah, no, no, it wouldn't. No, no. Right, yeah. And um, so w- during all this time, are you still working for RT or are you kind of freelance? Uh, I left RT in 88. Uh, I... Went back in again, Philip Camp, a good friend, he was an executive producer in there, and I had done an awful lot of setting up comedy, and I was managing Sean Hughes early 91, 92. I was the PR director for the Galway Arts Festival. I was doing a lot of stuff, right? Yeah. Because I like doing that. I like, I like being busy. I hate waking up in the morning and thinking my week is just just, just that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, uh, and then I kind of, again, I was doing a year of clubs. I started a club onto John Rodgerson's key called the Gasworks. And that happened to be the same time as a huge explosion of the talent. So we Jack D, Lee Evans, Joe Brand, a huge amount of the talent from the UK. But then also we had Sean Hughes, Dylan Moran, Ardell Hallam, Barry Mur- Murphy. So it was a good time. But then I kind of knew it was a good, good time. And there was no professional venue for any stand-up comedians to come. So I liked that. And then, so this is kind of pre laughter lounge, oh, or any or any decade space. beforehand. Yeah, yeah. You know, not that's what I'm saying. Yeah, is that the same building that is that oh, the Gasworks pub? No, now the Gasworks. It used to be a venue. Uh, I forget. I think it's knocked down now. I think it's oh. gone. It's very, very, it was very close to Windmill Lane. Okay. And my my. And then what happened was that Windmill Lane in that time, 1992, they got the TV3 license. And everybody celebrated. Yeah. And I went, we're going to put broadcast lines across the roof into the gas works. And they were going, yeah, at last, a stand-up show on, on, on um, sorry, a stand-up show on Irish TV. Yeah. And, but then they lost it. But I had sponsorship for the stand-up. So I stayed with it for about a year. Mm. Not as a performer, but more, more, more as a producer. 
And then I got asked in to produce a stand-up show on RT, and I stayed there for another three years. You must have been involved in lots of projects that just, because of the nature of the time, they just weren't willing to go for it. But but it could have been amazing at that at that time, just based on the amount, the sheer amount of pies that you had fingers in. <laughs> it's important to have many <laughs> many fingers and many pies because some don't. Oh, we're work. trying, we're trying, and some don't don't work. The Gasworks was a great venue. Now it would be a gold mine, because you walked from the Liffey, you walked from a collar bridge down to the Gasworks, and after the Gasworks, which is a John Rodzinski. It was nothing. It's it now in people's minds. It was probably nearly opposite the the big theatre there on on the on the on the, on the, the keys. The yeah, the, the Grand Canal. Yeah. No, no, the, the other one oh, across the oh the, the bridge. convention centre. The yeah. convention centre. Yeah. It's probably across from there. Mm. Now you can imagine now with the hundreds and thousands of apartments mm. with Googlers and you know all these young people who really have nowhere to go at night bar the pub right but that was a great a great venue and sometimes I, I lay awake at night and thinking will I do it again and sometimes I go nah <laughs> you're semi-retired now semi-retired yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm in the th- third third act yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm becoming yeah I'm, I'm I'm 78 next birthday and it doesn't feel that you know no. it doesn't feel it, it at doesn't all look at yeah, you yeah. know I don't I don't feel that and it's and that that age thing, I think I'm going to. Uh, I'm doing. I've actually decided to go back and write and perform a stand-up show. Really? If this goes out in April, I'm in Galway in the Town Hall Theatre upstairs on April the third and April the fourth, and it was more a challenge to myself because I began to read uh, like a lot about age and stuff like that. And you know, if you don't look after your mind, m- mental health, if you don't exercise your muscles and memory. Uh, it could have slowly, you know, <laughs> negative yeah. factors down the line. Yeah. Uh, I'm very, very lucky. I, I'm, I'm married for a second time for 15 years. And we have kids who are aged at the moment 10, 12 and 14. And I'm very, I have two older sons in their t- t- 20s. But I'm very mindful of, of being part of their lives. I lost my mum when I was... I was to 25 and she, she was 55. And I'm always conscious of, of, of that generational thing, you know. And so I decided to, A, give myself a challenge. But, you know, I wasn't bad at it, you know. And I've worked for the last 20 years. I've worked with comedians. I've worked with comedy producers, comedy directors. I've worked with script writers. I've been adding, you know, I've been adding stuff either as an exec or a director or a producer or a script, you know, I, I, I'd add jokes and everything else. So it, it's not has come out of nowhere, but, but, but for me as a performer, nobody knows who I am now. But I'm willing to take that on. So that, that, that's my next thing. And I'm part of the third act, which is, I'm, I, I, like I've joined that mental state. And I think everybody has to be aware of it because you've got to be aware even of your folks, you know, right? Uh, that people are living now an extra 20, 25, 30 years after they retire. Like, it's amazing. Mm. There's more people over 60 in Ireland than under 25. And people, even in filmmaking, I, you know, that kind of thing, I think they're missing an audience. I think or, or, RT are always complaining that their audience is getting, getting older. But 
they shouldn't ignore that. They should give them programs that embrace that energy that's there. Because I grew up with rock and roll. I grew up with dope. I grew up with anarchy. You know, I grew up with punk. punk. Well, I was, you know, it was a bit yeah. later. But but yeah. but it's that attitude, and that attitude doesn't doesn't change. And I'm looking forward to it in a kind of a uh, in a in a. If I walk off the stage on Saturday night and go away. I, I like I'm either going to be like, what a stupid <laughs> idea, or else I'm going to say, hey, you know. But that, that's living, right? I mean, it's living. Still, yeah, the yeah. risk, the, you know. The, you got to take the punt, as you say. Take your punt. You know, yeah. you, you've got to fail before before you succeed. Yeah. Uh, uh, but you know, it's something that that I'm not going to climb Everest. You know, uh, I'm not going to do a masters. You know, but it's a bit. You know, I don't like that thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I love the fact that that. Uh, that I'm literally going to either fall off a cliff or uh, sail down with a lovely sail. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Well, you cycled up here, which which is... Uh, Cy- cycling, yeah. Yeah, it's a huge thing. I love that idea of staying active. That's often, you know, thematically comes up a lot on this mm. podcast about staying active and the perception of this country that, you know, it's frowned upon to do many things. The only kind of advice you give to people, just in terms of staying active, both both to keep your mind, like you said, to keep that hamster running around yeah, in that yeah. cage, as it were. But any kind of tips over, you know, of your own career that have helped you to stay free or keep moving, you know. Uh, I think living in Dublin was, as I say, I had a chance to live in London and a chance to kind of have a career in London, and I probably, I probably could have ended up in a broadcaster, could have ended up in a exec role. But you seem to be kind of one thing or another. What I liked about Dublin, and maybe because I got involved, for instance, in 1977-1978, I was starting a stand-up club, and Neil Jordan would be there. I go to the project. You meet James Sheridan. Uh, a lot, you know. In other words, the artistic community used to mix. If you went to a party and you knew it was going to be a good party. You just turn around the, the, the corner and you'd meet a, a band member, you meet a poet, you meet a designer, you know. So I always liked that thing. And that would start to ideas because you chat and you meet, become friends. You think, oh, why did we do that? Why didn't you do that? And you say, why, why, why didn't you do that? Come on, let's, let's do it. Grip off your arts. You must have spent a lot of time in the, what was it, the pink elephant? Or the pink <laughs> elephant. <laughs> <laughs> The pink you elephant. Heard, you ever heard the pink elephant? No, no. It's funny. The best night to go to the pink elephant was always Monday night, because right. all the musicians and actors and all the thing were always busy at the weekends. Yeah. If you went on Monday night, all the punters would go at the weekend thinking they're going to meet somebody famous, right? right yeah. But on Monday night, you wouldn't know who walked in, and they usually did, right? Well, Phil, Phil Lennett lived there, didn't he? Practically, practically. Ah. Right, right. My uh, good uh, good older friend of mine so yeah, yeah, used to walk yeah. the door there. Yeah, yeah. That's the, yeah. that's another thing I think about Dublin. I think if if you have an element of fame, you still feel kind of safe to go out and and hang out and uh, you know. And Phil is a perfect example. You know, the Bono is another, and Shanae Duck O'Connor. You know, I'm not saying that it's uh, it's safe, but you can still get an international perspective and eat eat fantastic food and go to fantastic movies and theatre it's an international city you know and you, you know you don't have to think about getting out I feel sorry for a lot of people who go out because then they find 
if they go to London and stuff like that. And I met a lot of them who just doesn't work out and they're too proud to come home and they tend to get, you know, go backwards and their energy's gone, their ambition's gone. You know, that, that's, a, that's unfortunate. Uh, you've set up a few production companies in your time. Is that too right? <laughs> I only set up one. Okay. In my, yeah, in my time, yeah, yeah. Uh, was that... That was... Sideline. Right, okay. It's, it's still there as a sideline. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I set up sideline because uh, I left RTE and then Midas Productions asked me to go in who were based in Bagger Street. And I liked Mike and uh, I didn't know really what I wanted to do. I left RTE. I, 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 I was a commissioning editor of entertainment. Like, like I reached that broadcast pinnacle. Right. That yeah. wasn't really an, an ambition, but yeah. all the different factors for the previous sort of 15 or 20 years, yeah. I had such a network, you know, and I had such an idea that how to. So it, it worked for a while, but I'm not a great corporate person. Uh, you know, I could count on one hand the amount of people I like kind of working for. Right. I like working for people like James Morris. You know, I like I, I loved working with you two, Paul McGuinness. I always liked, if I ever was going to work for anybody, they had to be faster than me, more clever than me, right. and open up doors. Because I'd be very much a person to go, I can do that, you know. And then, uh, so when I left RTE Mutual, where uh, I didn't really get on well at the end, uh, the first year was fantastic, and then 9-11 happened. Right. And I joined 9-11 the year before that. And suddenly 9-11 happened and that, all that freedom and all that all that budget we had for development and trying stuff, it all stopped. Right. So suddenly I was a head of the department rather than uh, rather than the kind of commissioner. Nice right? commissioning yeah. So when I left RTE, I joined Midas Productions. Yeah. And funny enough, I got a commission in RTE for the stand-up show, which was the Liffey Laugh. Which went really, really well. I remember that. Yeah. And I met Jerry Kelly, who was in and out doing some work. And Jerry Kelly was a retired stockbroker, middle 40s and stuff like that. I really liked him. And he knew the person, the commercial director of the GEA. And Jerry had an idea to uh, put together a D DVD package, you know, for, for the Christmas market. A DVD of the All Irelands, and my dad played played hurling for Cork Cork Miners, and my cousin Donald O'Grady was a, a great hurler, but also a fantastic manager. The GA was in the blood, uh, and uh, so I said I'll go as, as, as your producer. Make long story short, we're still now producing D DVDs of the All Ireland finals. I had a great six or seven years, and now it literally is a market just for people who want to send it in, in an envelope abroad. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole DVD side has, has changed, right? But that's how Sideline started. We were sitting in a car in Crow Park and there was a gap under the tunnel and we could see the pitch directly along the line of a Sideline. And Jerry just said, what about Sideline? So I said, <laughs> okay, because of suits, because at yeah. the moment it, it's a bit of a Sideline, yeah. It always is. It always has to be, to me, Sideline. Work is never the end all and be all of my life. Yeah. It, it never has. It sometimes becomes very much a challenge, 
But uh, I got to be able to sense, as we talked about before, life is for living. And uh, I always try to keep enough of projects in the boil that, you know, for everyone that uh, doesn't get made or get get done, an another does. And uh, stoic is the word. <laughs> Welcome to the Stoicism podcast. Yeah. Um, how do you, you must have had a few disappointments or rejections over the years. How did you deal with them? Citizens of Boomtown, which was on RT1. I'd won, I'd won a month ago, says he. Yeah. That was the first time in 11 years I had a credit on RT. Would you believe that? Mm. Right? First credit on RT as a producer or a director. Yeah. Uh, Barring bar a little uh, side job I did with Shay Healy on uh, uh, a tribute hour for Nighthawks about six or seven years ago. Yeah. No, but I mean, no. You were so pitching and... Going pitching, I yeah. pitch, I still do. I develop, I write. I don't think I'm a bad kind of writer. It pisses me off, if I can say that word, yeah. that an idea that you put in three years ago hops on screen two years later, mm -hmm. right? I'm not saying that you have a divine right, but uh, it really feels... Uh, I feel RTE for all its... It's goodness, and it is fantastic to people there. I, I, I think they missed an opportunity to be a commercial broadcaster as well. I think they've used the license fee a little bit too much to be a kind of protection, mm -hmm. you know. But with an opportunity about 10, 15 years ago, when RT could have entered the English-speaking world of formats, of sitcoms, of stand-up. My idea for a stand-up show when I did the Liffy Laugh, was was to put on a show. We did it in Vicker Street with seven cameras, a jib, uh, kind of steady cam, to do a, a show in a theatre. Because I remember doing, uh, I remember doing a stand-up show when I first started in there, or doing stand-up on, uh, I forget the show, but I remember a floor manager saying, what do you need two cameras in a stand-up for? You only, right. need the one. only need the one. Only one person <laughs> talking, right? And then about two or three years later, you see the Michael McIntyre show, and you see all that gliss and three thousand people, right? And it's kind of and that that for the audience at home, they think this is an event. Mm. Where I always felt that RT used to shoot it small. The last show I think was a an award show or a, a talent show they did from the Sugar Club. It looked small. It looked dark. It looked... Oh, it was that new comedy thing, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah, it yeah. looked small, it looked dark. Uh, Cabaret-ish, kind of they, really they small. They had yeah, yeah, yeah. a, a tracking shot that made no sense to the script, made no sense to anything, and it was all style over con content, mm -hmm. and I could see why they never went they, back again. Uh, yeah, I mean, they've clearly dropped the ball over the years in terms of the, amount, the sheer amount of huge revenue they would have made especially with streaming services now and stuff as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and now they're really like enthusiastically trying to go after that that you know, the the train that's left the station as it were. I I I give you to two to two examples, right? And they're, they're not you know, wow wow. Uh I when I was the commissioning under entertainment, I used to have to look look after the the December the 31st the, the Christmas Eve show. And I got to know a young magician called Keith Barry. So I said, 
Mike Murphy was the presenter. I said, Keith, what did you go in and do? Do it, you know, if you can. Yeah, fine. So you did, did a few, 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 few minutes. I left the job and then I picked up the phone to Keith and said, Do you still fancy still being a, a star? He went, Yeah. So we put together a promo, uh, or, or she commissioned it. It did really well. We did two, two series. It was a finalist in the Rose Door, and then suddenly it was picked up internationally. It sold to. Yeah, she's got its own American show. Yeah, yeah, and on the back of that, yeah, so it sold to 42 Coco countries, and the revenue into RTE was nearly, I think, a, a third of what it cost them. Now, if I was anybody in RTE thinking, do you remember that show we gave, i just pick a number, right? Mm. Do you remember that show we gave 100,000 to, to produce, to the independent? We got 33,000 back. So that means that we only spent two-thirds. Imagine if we got two-thirds back. We don't spend a third. Imagine if we got 100% back. That means that we can put all this money back into development, back into other talent. Look outside the country. We're English-speaking. The UK is very expensive to produce shows, right? But in the same way that you two did it in music, why couldn't English language producers, directors, writers, creators, blah, 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 do it in your TV station? If the will was there, but if there's nobody in charge, if there's nobody saying we need a commercial division run by commercial savvy people, right, it's not going to happen. So in my experience, some great people are working in RTE, but bar one or two there's never been anybody put in charge of that international format division who had international format experience, who knew where to go, knew what to develop, and knew what to sell. And what now is this, you know, I'm not saying it's the showbounds all over again, but it's copycats of other stuff, and it's milking the food formats, it's milking the travel, not generating and new stuff radio. Not generating new, new, new stuff. So again, what the show bands, what I used to always remember about the show bands, is they were very good. But when they retired, and the drummer used to get arthritis in, in, in his hands, he had no income. They had no income, because they were playing other people's songs. Mm. It was only when Phil Linnett and Paul Brady and, and other people started to write their own songs that they began to get international plays, and then suddenly they get checks. For the royalties, and I always, I always had that in my head from from when I was sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, that you know, yeah, yeah. you had to create your own stuff to actually make a living because there's nothing nicer than being able to take a few months off, not to worry. There's nothing worse than having to wake up and think, God, I have no work or I can't pay the rent. What do you think now? RTE should be doing to kind of fix the big problems, or what? If you could, you know, I I I, look, I I think I think there's a tidal wave out there that everybody has to accept. The whole view, what's in your what's in your hand, what's in your phone, right? And again, I'm saying I've got kids, 10, 12, 14, and I could see that developing. Uh, myself and my 12 year old, we might watch, you know, pre records a match of the day maybe on a Sunday morning mm. uh, they might watch uh, Dancing with the Stars 
we'd, we'd always try and watch the news. But I'll other than I'll tell that, you what they're, what they're not watching is original children's content being made by RTE. It doesn't, doesn't exist anymore. Nope. No. Everything's you know, outsourced. You know, where, when I was on RTE, I, uh, when I went back into RTE the second time, I went into young peoples. And the, the generational thing is hugely important for, uh, for an organization like RTE. If you don't have new blood, right? But because the nature of this, not the civil service attitude, but, you know, they're having their own problems at the moment. It's not up to me. And I don't want, want to feel I've got some really good friends in there, including my wife who works there to produce the director. Uh, <laughs> right? uh, but I, I, I think, A, I think it, it's suffering from, from a legacy of, of, you see, I think in London, if you work at a broadcaster, if you get itchy feet, you can go to another one. Mm. Or if you have an idea or ambition, or if people leave a broadcaster like ITV and set up a production company, they come back and get you and say, would you like to join my production company? And they go, yay! The Irish broadcast market has been quite sterile. You know, it's been quite kind of like, if you're in, you're in. Mm. And to be fair, you know, to be fair, RT was a really great place to work in. Then... You know, people would think, oh, TV3, the independent sector, and blah, blah, blah. And now I know there's independents out there thinking, I'd love to work in RT just for the security, right? But then there's a block and you, you can't. Uh, public service broadcasting is so important. You'll only miss it when it's gone, guys. Only miss it when it's gone. It's important, the license fee and everything. But there's, as I said before, there's a wave that RT or anybody else can't really stop. The BBC is the, the BBC lost 300 people in February, right? Uh, Channel 4 is the same. Uh, all broadcast stations are suffering from the disruptors, from, from the streamers, from the Netflix. I mean, hands up here when they sit down at 9 o'clock when the kids go to bed or half 9, have a glass of wine and say, what will we watch? Where do you go to? Netflix. Where do you go to? Yeah, Netflix. Netflix, right? And that, unfortunately or fortunately, is the way it's going. So the whole c culture is gone, and that's why I, I think RT is so important, that seeing Irish voices, hearing Irish voices, seeing Irish news, seeing Irish sport, you know, it's important that we don't lose the window that this box, or in some cases, this 50-inch plasma mm. gives you. We can all be cynical and we can all be, oh, you know. Uh, and as I say, there's, I've met D, D Forbes uh, and, you know, uh, she is a hugely experienced leader and, and I have to admire the tenacity of the, the key executives in there because they're all fighting and say, not a losing battle, but the big thing I think where they can't afford at the moment is to invest in development and bringing in new talent. Well, that's the uh, saddest thing, surely, because that's, that's what it needs. That's what it needs, but yeah. that's the point when they can't. So they're losing the children's department because it's a cash cost, because most of the people working there were on freelance contracts. Or they're not letting... They're not uh, developing brand new ideas that might fail mm -hmm. but if you produce five of them maybe two might succeed so they're only really commissioning stuff that they feel the audience wants 
But we all know, un unless it appears, we all know that the surprise is out there. And the audience really d d doesn't know what, what they want until it's given to them. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, Can I ask you one more RT, very quick uh, related question? Did you pass on anything that you regretted on when you were head of, head of entertainment? Did you pass on something? I know this was post. I'm not angling for the father, father Ted thing because no. that was gone because you said you were there. No, in no. Or whatever. No, I mean, you know, uh, I remember going to see Brendan O'Carroll alive. Uh, my sister, who lives in Holland, and uh, she was over and. I said, do you want to go? And I knew, I did a pilot with Brenda, the Brendan O'Carroll show before uh, with Tyrone Productions. John Matheson produced it. And this is after I came back from the UK the second time, I think. Uh, and I thought the Brendan O'Carroll show, it was before the sitcom in a way, it was on the strength of his popularity with, with, uh, with Mrs. Brown, Brown Boys in Scotland. And that was passed on, Right. By RTE, but it still annoys me that it still annoys me that, uh, and I'm mainly because I'm such a comedy fan, and you know I used to kind of sow the seeds and get the shovel out and dig the roots. It still annoys me that uh, RTE are still really playing that I'll pay a license fee game. So at one stage. You had a Jason Burns show on BBC. You had Father Ted on Channel 4. Now, let's get this straight. Father Ted was never, the writers of Father Ted never pitched it to RTE. So I'm not mm -hmm. in any way saying that. But you have Brendan O'Carroll up there, you know, and the Brendan O'Carroll, the Mrs. Brown, Brown Boys, that could have been easily produced out of Dublin. And if you think of the income and everything else, but... You don't know, maybe the fact that Scottish producers did it, they didn't dwell too much on the nuances. Mm -hmm. And, it, 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 you know, but uh, I still... But they took that punt. They took that punt that you referred to. They, they took, took that, that punt, punt because a producer went, I think, and saw that Brendan and Mrs. Brown boys was sort of filling a theatre in Glasgow and Perth and, and Edinburgh and saying... Hundreds of thousands of people can come, come to see, and yet he come over and do the Olympia for a fortnight, and there'd be no executive at the back going, "This is, you know what? There's a bit of snobbery as well, so, so, kind of so sometimes." And I'm 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 a great believer if people pay money and to see, see something, it wouldn't be something that I might lose sleep over, but there's a reason for it, right? I mean, I mean, I remember one of the. Before I got involved in RT, I used to do PR for Makem and Clancy, Liam Makem and Tommy Clancy, and they do maybe one tour every year or ever. And I go around with them, you know. I, you know, I'd be more not a tour manager, but I, I'd be there at the end of the night, have a cup, cup of tea, and you look at the audience, and you always appreciate a they paid their money to go out, and b they used to put on a show. That was remarkable. I was such admiration, but I never was a choosy person over who I work with or why I work work with. I don't believe in this thing. Go, you know, like oh, they're too cool or uncool. Mm -hmm. It's a, if they have an audience, I want to try and find out how how you can 
widen that audience or use something for that audience to bring into another project. So that that's why I always say if I get involved in a project, it can't be precious and artistic and they, they don't High understand art, it. Uh, yeah, yeah. Nobody came to my movie. It's not my fault. They just understand it. I mean, I'm ahead of my time. No, no, just ride the wave of popularity because ultimately that determines your next job, but it also educates you in the wider sphere of things, you know. Uh, just to bring it up to the, uh, bring it back to the Boomtown Rats, and you've made a lot of documentaries. Um, so I think they've like, broken up actually since we we've did this. Okay, <laughs> again, again. <laughs> uh, well, I think with like any successful rock doc, and I'd like to hear some of your influences for this as well. Um, it can't just be about the band. I have uh, a great story with yeah, you. I've been on. thinking about this this morning. Yeah. One of the first docs I ever saw that really opened my eyes to stuff was Don't Look Back, which is Bob Dylan. I don't know whether, you know, it's it's probably oh, on yeah, was this amazing 1967. Like, Albert Mails, but directed, produced by D.A. Pennybecker. Right, and I remember yeah. looking, who's D.A. Pennybecker? And I kept in my mind, D.A. Pennybecker. And then maybe a good, good few years later, I was wondering why I was enjoying this doc behind the scenes of Robert K Kennedy trying to become a senator. I think it was against Hubert, Humphrey. Hubert Humphrey. Yeah. And it was in the, not, not the White House, but it was, it was in a very kind of corporate way. Mm. But for the first time, I felt the camera was in the corner of the room, right? And I began to, I couldn't go on to Wikipedia. Yeah. D.A. Pennybecker, you can now. So everybody, go on. With the D.A. Pennebecker. I think he's still alive. He's in his, his 90s. Yeah, direct cinema. Is kind of dark, cinema dark, verite. Cinema yeah, verite. Yeah, yeah. And uh, believe it or not, when you look back at uh, the films I've made, <laughs> the soccer film, the Pogues, the Clannets, uh, there's no presenter, there's no narrator, there's no scripted pieces. It's all told when the information you get from either the interviews or sometimes you're, you'd be a bit clever. Mm. I remember on the U2 doc I did when they came to Phoenix Park, they went to an opening of an exhibition up at the Grapevine Art Centre and it was the Unforgettable Fire exhibition. Mm. But I needed to get from A to B. I rang Anya Lawler who worked as a news caster and I said to her, is there any chance you could just record something? Because I just had shots of them getting out of a car and walking in. Nobody had said what they're doing, where they are. So we got only a lot to say. And tonight in the Grayford Arts Centre, you too appeared at the opening of the, you know, and I had all that. And I, I really liked that as if it came from the radio of the cab or, you know. Mm. So they're, they're little things you learn along the way. But I think I wrote to D.A. Pennebecker and I was f turning 40 in... Uh, in 1992, and I'm a Leo, like in August, so usually my memory all the time is I'm on holidays. I recently separated, so I said I'm going to, and I recently done a load of work, and I said I'm going to reward myself, I'm going to, a, I'm going to New York, I have a best friend over there, somewhere to stay, I had a sister in LA, I was going to go over there after. So I wrote to them, and I think I got a phone call back and said yes, I just said I'm a, I'm a 
fan and I'd love to meet him. I'd love to talk to him. Not to go, oh, how do you do this or how do you do that? I, I just like listening. Oh, my God. I couldn't, again, everything that I thought he would be, he was. He met me on the steps and said, what are you doing? Come on, come on, come to the shop. Like, it's, like it was his turn to make lunch. He, they owned a four-story brownstone building. They did ed- edit suites. I don't know when he lived there, I didn't ask, but they did two floors of edit suites. His wife is the editor. And... Uh, Seems he'd never leave the house. You know, <laughs> but it was his turn to, to make lunch. Yeah, we yeah. went, he got to two bottles of red wine. Some on rye. Yeah, yeah, but it was wonderful. Uh, but again, I spent about three or four, four, four hours... And heaven, but it sounds about uh, yeah. We talked about everything, mm. and he, he gave me a little t- t- tour. And by then, of course, he was now working in Avid, which was un- unreal. But the story I was going to say to you is that he started as a sound engineer, and I think the first thing they ever did was they did a reality show about families who lived in the Everglades, down south of Florida, and they lived there. But he recorded the sound at that stage, on a disc, a clay disc. Oh, okay. And he had to be linked to the camera to get the sound on a disc. So this was like early 60s or something, right? So that's how when people now talk about sound, they don't even think, you know. But then, so he went and invented the first ever wireless or transistor sound system so he didn't have to be connected to a camera. So when they started to shoot those don't look backs, he would have been in the front seat of the cab when Dylan was at the back and the cameraman, and he didn't have to be... So there was more movement, freedom. Freedom. So when you saw the Robert Kennedy doc and you were wondering why the camera was so far away, he was in another corner. So that was a revolution, right? And again, you know... Uh, a lot of a lot of people kind of listening would be thinking, yeah, so what? <laughs> but for somebody like me, who's really, I see, I got I a history degree, so everything I look at, always I know it always has to have a cause effect. And so when I was looking at being a director in RTE, I had just done the pogs and other things like that. I was just interested. You're curious. I'm curious. You have to be curious, mm. you know. And if I get involved in a project. I usually have thought about it for months and months and months. I haven't. I don't jump into stuff. What did you want to kind of explore with Citizens, Citizens of Boomtown? Well, Citizens of Boomtown was, was a challenge because, uh, you know, uh, sometimes they say never work with animals. They also say never work with friends. Uh, I've known Bob a, a long, long, long time. Uh, I've never really worked w- with him, you know, in, in this intensity, you know, he, he, he's strong and he's worked on other productions. He's, he, he ran his own production company along with other people. Like, he knows his stuff is made. He was very keen that it was made in Dublin. He was very keen that I was involved, very keen that, that, that he wouldn't lose the Irishness of it. Uh, and I had pitched in a doc two years beforehand to Arte and RT just on Bob. And he was okay at the start and then thought, you know what, no, because it would have been about me. And then when the band started again, I think he got this big wave of energy. And they, the album recorded two years ago. And Bob is like myself, in a way, in, in that we like events. So he wanted the book of 
he's got the book of the lyrics out, he's got the album, he's got the tour, and now he's got the film. So there's no point in having them kind of released at d- different time. He wanted a big splash. So we talked about it this time last year, which is probably early spring 2019. Uh, and my job really was to try and try and convince them there's a bigger story here. Because if you live, live in a bubble like, like that, you, you forget, right? You, not forget, but you kind of... So my big job, and I think I've succeeded, was to try and put their story into a bigger layer of events. But not, uh, clearly not stable, a dead rat. Uh, no, that story is great. Package. I mean, th- he's a funny guy. I really like, you know, <laughs> you know he's, he's, a, he's a funny guy. And I kind of like that. I like that element of him that, he, that he'll say something or he insist on something. And then the f- f- following day, he go, did I think of that? That was a stupid idea, you know. So you've got to deal with that a lot. But ultimately, my job is to try and pull all this archive, pull all this interview material, pull all this le- legacy uh, try and create characters out of the other members of the band as well, because mm-hmm. you know you had to. I mean, the whole thing was about a band, a gang, how they changed themselves, changed Ireland, uh, changed punk in a way by getting to number one, which is unheard of, so uncool to actually have a hit, mm-hmm. uh, and then have another one, right? And then their problems in America are really entertaining and are really interesting, mm-hmm. and. And then just when you feel or just when you think the story is going to become kind of dark and, oh, my God, they're not selling, then suddenly Band-Aid, Live-Aid, the whole thing, whoosh, again. So I, I said to somebody, you couldn't have written it. You've had to write a screenplay of, 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 a, of a band. Like, the beats are there. I was only saying to somebody, somebody said to me, I sometimes approach doing long-form docs like an album. In the same way, I love albums that at the end of it, you go, that's a great album. But as soon as you hear the first track, you go, I love this track. And next, I love this track. So you forget about the pre- previous track. right? I hate albums when, when you have to p- pick up the needle and go, I, I, I don't like this track. So that's, your, that's my, my job, uh, I, I suppose, is to try and make sure that there's 12 or f- 14 singles or 12 or 14 kind of... Uh, kind of Beats are kind of chapters, right? Yeah. And to make sure that each of them have have, a, have their own identity, a beginning, middle, and end, but the they all have a very clear narrative spine, which is consistent and tone. Uh, and if you succeed in that, at the end of it, people go, "God, that was a good, good that was a good doc, that, that was a good watch," and they don't understand why. Then they go away and say, "I love that bit." Oh no, I I love that bit. I was ashamed, uh, you know, to, to how much I didn't know. I know I I knew pockets of information, you know, uh, less so about the dead rats scenario with the American radio stations, but you know, uh, just for people listening, uh, when when this goes out, it's it's still available on the RTE player. So please do give it a watch. Um, uh, and also was screened at the Virgin Media Dublin Film Festival, International Film Festival last week. Um, we could literally chat to you for the next four hours, and it's 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 really easy work. But uh, we we have to let you go, home, right? Well, just one last question. We just uh, oh, we, te- we tend to we like to ask people. I've got to collect a child from oh. a, a play a play, a play oh. day. Go on. Oh, you, sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, if you had one piece of advice for yourself when you were starting out what would you say to yourself 
you never know where you're going to en- end up. You know, uh, I certainly, as I say, I did a H-dip because my dad said, look, don't don't leave university without something. So I said, okay, I'll go and I'd go and qualify as a school t- t- teacher. But in that year, because I was only teaching six hours a week, I had so much time to get involved in events. I had so much time off. And, uh, I, t- you know, take every opportunity. I, I'm a great, great believer. And look, look around you, you know. Uh, look around you. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a great believer on, on, on the acorn seed and that grow into a tree, right? So if you've got a friend or you know of somebody else, if you're involved in the arts or involved in anything at all, if, if you notice somebody who can get you up a, a step, go and befriend them. Knock on their door, you know, send them a text, find out their email. Nobody, I never, ever, ever not reply to an email about worker advice. Never do. Uh, sometimes to my chagrin, because you'll end up... <laughs> You know, but I just think it's important that, uh, you know, and sometimes you've got to, you know, accept that maybe you're not good enough, you're not fast enough, you're not clever enough. Uh, There's one group of people who I can't stand in in this industry are the dilettantes and the people who, who get work off the back of stuff are the inflator CVs. Are they, they think it's a great world because I'm in film or TV and I know this and know that and they go to the right places and, and, and they're, they're, in, 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 in the music business we used to call them posers and there's a lot of posers around mm. where if you ch- chip away, you know, people I respect for are, are doers, you know, doers, does, go, go and do it. In your experience, does Mother Nature pick those off the herd <laughs> or are they left to run free? <laughs> my mum was a housewife my dad was a civil servant like nobody among my siblings and I have six of them are involved in media TV film I, I never yeah. you know I never had an opportunity I never dreamt of it I was involved in drama in school and I was a member of drama sock in UCD it, it was more the experience mm-hmm. of testing myself you know and then things fall into place and then you say, hey, hold on. There's a nice little road there. I think I'll go there for a while. But I'm always at your feet. I, I, I jump all the time, as you know. You must be never at home. <laughs> well, we don't want to get you in trouble, so we better <laughs> let you go. So thanks so much for taking the time to talk. A pleasure. <laughs>